You're listening to an audio sermon from Harvest Bible Chapel in Oakville, Ontario. For more information, please visit our website at harvestoakville.ca. It's a joy to be here with you this morning to open God's Word with you. If you have a copy of God's Word in front of you, please open it to John chapter 2. And if you don't, there should be one maybe in the seat back in front of you. Um, God's Word will be what is informing us this morning, so please have it in front of you. Um, Often, uh, we want to know that we can trust God. If you're like me, you have lots of moments in your life where you're like, I need help. I need help. All this week and even this moment now, I'm thinking, I need help. I can't do this on my own. I need God's help. And, and so often when we're thinking about trusting God, I know for myself, it's encouraging when we have signs that we can trust him, that we can trust God. In Exodus chapter 4, Moses is given powerful signs so that when he goes to the Hebrew people in Egypt and he goes and stands before Pharaoh a little while after that, he'd be able to perform these signs to see that he wasn't just making this stuff up, that there was actually power and authority there, and he was sent from God for a reason and for a purpose. And so signs are are helpful because they inform us and they teach us. Um, Have you ever been driving somewhere and you missed a sign? That's the worst, right? All I needed to know was that one street, and I blew by it, and now it's turn left, turn left, turn left, trying to get back on track. Well, we're praying that this series would be full of signs of God for you that would be encouraging for you, that would be faith-building and heart-stirring for you. In John chapter 20, uh, John's writing at the end of the book, and he sums up the reason why he writes the book of John. And he says this, but these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. John writes the whole book for this purpose, that you may have reason to believe in Jesus and believing in Jesus be forgiven of your sin. And so in our text today, we're going to see that too, beholding the glory, seeing the glory of God and having our hearts stirred, growing in our love for him. Hopefully in this series and maybe even today, you'll be challenged, you'll be convicted, you'll be encouraged, and you will feel the love of God And I'm praying, uh, and we are all praying, that you will receive a sign from God that would uh, stir your heart in a greater way for him. So before we get into John 2, let's bow and pray uh, together right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, I thank you, Lord, for your word. I thank you that um, we have it to look to and that we don't have to rely on man's wisdom, Lord. And um, I pray that you would help us to um, understand your love, your grace, your mercy, Lord, poured out to us. Thank you for your son, Jesus. Thank you that through his death and resurrection on the cross, you make it possible for us to come to you, which would otherwise be impossible because of our sin. But you, in your mercy, you show that grace to us. And so thank you. Thank you, Lord. Please give us glimpses of your glory this morning. And would you get great honor and praise, Lord, from our hearts and our lives and obedience and love that flows out from us as a result of this morning. Teach us, Lord, from your word, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Well, in John 2, which is where we're going to be, Jesus is about to do um, what we're going to see in just a second is his first miracle. His first miracle. In John 2, we find Jesus is at a wedding. Weddings are a wonderful event where we celebrate the coming together of a man and a woman before God as designed by God. And scholars believe that Jesus' very presence at this wedding um, just continues to affirm Um, God's approval of marriage as ordained by God. So let me read verses 1 through 11. I'm going to give us the whole story, and then we'll go through it, okay? So let's read together. John chapter 2, verse 1. 
On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus was also, or Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. And when the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now there were six stone jars there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water. And they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. And when the master of the feast tasted, the water now became wine and did not know uh, where it came from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew. The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, everyone serves the good wine first. And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you, you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee and manifest his glory and his disciples believed in him. Stay there in verse 11 for just a second, because this is the goal of all of this this morning. You see there that it says, John writes that he manifests his glory and his disciples believed in him. Those phrases should be underlined in your Bible, because this is the point. This is why John says in chapter 20 that he's writing this, that we would see the glory of God, that we would have our hearts stirred. And like the disciples, I'm praying that this morning we would believe in God in a greater way than we even do uh, right now, that he would manifest his glory to us and we, his followers, would believe in him. So why is it so important then to see the glory of God? Why is it so important for us to see his glory? Why did we just sing a few minutes ago, show us your glory? Why did I just pray a few minutes ago that God would show us his glory? I want to put this quote on the screen before I answer that question. If you have a high view of God, your problems will seem small. And if you've got a low view of God, your problems will overwhelm you. See, we need to see the glory of God so we will have a proper and accurate high view of God. When we begin to sit before him and understand his greatness, his awesomeness, his perfection, his might, his power, his authority, everything else gets real little real quick. That's why we need to behold the glory of God, his manifest glory, as John writes, and believe in him. Because when we don't, when we believe the lies of the evil one and that the world is selling us that God is small, that God doesn't exist, that God can't help you, of course your problems are going to seem massive and huge. But when we grasp the truth and when we behold the glory of God, things change. And so um, we need to do that. We need to have moments where we come before God and we behold his glory we all have moments where our problems seem big, maybe even overwhelming, and, and maybe if we took a survey in this room by earthly standards, you have some of the biggest problems. But let me tell you, and this is a simple but profound truth, there is no problem for us that is a problem to God. There is no problem that you or I face that is not solvable by God. So we need to see his glory, signs of his glory and have our hearts stirred. And that's what we're going to look at today, signs of his glory. And so what I want to do is we'll go back to John chapter 2, verse 1 now, and we'll go through here and look at some steps on the path to seeing the sign, all right? We want to see the signs of God's glory in our life. What are the steps we need to take? All right, here we go, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. 
Jesus was also invited to the wedding with his disciples. Now, it says the third day. That's referring back to a timeline sequence that's been going on since John 1.19. Um, John wants us to know this is at the very beginning of Jesus' ministry. In fact, in verse 11, if you remember, it said this was the first miracle that he did. This is, this is it. He hasn't been displaying his messianess yet. That's not a word. I just made it up. But he hasn't been revealing the complete glory of his nature just yet. So now... He's at a wedding. Now, can we just pause for a second? One, how cool is it that you know Jesus, that you're friends with him? And then two, you're close enough that you invite him to your wedding, and then it gets even better because he comes. That's awesome. I've just always thought, like, who are these people? They're like buddies with Jesus. Like, come to our wedding. Yeah, I'll come and celebrate. That's, that's just awesome. So he goes, and it says that he's there with his disciples. Now, this isn't like they needed a whole table for all 12. They... At this point, it, he probably only has four, maybe five. He's only called four of his disciples so far in the Gospel of John. We don't know whether John is just not including himself in the calling there at the beginning, but there's only a few of them. The others had not yet been called yet, but they're at this wedding in verse 3. Look what it says. The wine ran out. The wine ran out. Now, a wedding celebration at this time, not unlike today, was the greatest and most celebratory moment of anybody's life. They didn't have things like high school graduation and university graduation and sweet 16. They didn't have any of those things that they were celebrating. So if you wanted to celebrate something in your life, you had to get married. This was it. This was the biggest, most amazing celebration that you could have for them at that time. And so they would have this celebration, and usually it, it was um, a, a wedding ceremony would happen sometime in the afternoon, maybe late afternoon, followed by a feast. And then they would, instead of going on a honeymoon, the bride and groom would hold an open house party for as long as a week. I don't know about you, but I'm more in favor of the honeymoon thing. So they're doing this, they're having this party, people are coming, and it says that the wine runs out. Now, wine was a symbol of excitement, of celebration, of happiness, and so when the wine runs out at this wedding, it meant that both the dreams of the bride and groom from childhood were slowly beginning to fall apart in front of them. And for the bride and groom, this would have been embarrassing, awkward, upsetting, and in some ways, uh, painful. Probably not how they wanted this day to go, probably not how they wanted their marriage to start. You ever been to a wedding where things just aren't going as planned? You, you can just sense, like, I don't know if that was supposed to happen. Maybe someone passed out or one of the candles lit something on fire. We have, you've been to one of those weddings before? You, you've been in one of those weddings before? You've been the groom in one of those weddings before? Yeah, okay. So, so when Lindsay and I got married, it was 40 degrees outside on an outdoor wedding, and that wasn't the crazy part of the day. The night before, we'd received a phone call from... Uh, well, my wife had received a phone call from the reception hall that the rainstorm that had quickly come through, it was only about a 20-minute rainstorm, had dumped down so much water on the reception hall roof that it filled up and the downspouts couldn't take it, and so it had filled up and pooled and collapsed. The roof of the entire reception hall had collapsed. The whole thing was destroyed. And so no one was injured, which was great, but the kitchen was destroyed, the fridge was destroyed, our cake was destroyed. Like, all of those things were... I know, oh, it's so sad. Listen... <laughs> I don't, I don't tell you that story for sympathy. We didn't plan on having a reception in a smoky 80s basement hall. That was not our plan, okay? However, the Lord provided. And all of the things that would have otherwise been a distraction that day were not. 
And no one cared about all of those things because it focused us back on the thing that we were really there for in the celebration of two people coming together before God. Listen, life doesn't always work out as we want it to. You probably know that already, that your plans may not always go through. Things don't always go as we plan, but God is bigger. And as we'll see, he wants us to know that he is bigger, that we would be in awe of him, and that we would trust in him more and more. So look at this our verse again. The problem comes. The wine runs out. Now, we're going to learn an amazing lesson from the mother of Jesus, Mary, here. It says that the wine runs out, and Mary, uh, the mother of Jesus, said to him, they have no wine. Now, she obviously cared about this couple enough that their problem becomes her problem really quick. We don't know whether she was a part of the catering crew. More likely that she was a part of the, the women in the town who had gathered together to help with this big feast. And, and they have this problem. And so immediately, though, she knows God is present at the wedding. Think about that. And so she turns to him. Here's point number one on our path to God's glory. I must turn to his provision. I must turn to his provision. If we want to see the glory of God in our lives, a sign from God that causes us to trust in him, to have our faith, and, and like the disciples, our belief in Jesus Christ increase, then we have to turn to Jesus. We have to turn to Jesus. Now, I've always been boggled by this because what made Mary think, I can go talk to Jesus about this? Because we know from verse 11 that he has not manifested his glory in miracles as of yet. He hasn't, it's not like once a week she'd come home and he'd be like, I made dinner miraculously. Like, that wasn't happening. Like, you think if, if he was tearing five loaves and two fish every week, she could expect this kind of thing. But that wasn't going on at all. But she comes to him and she asks this question. Now, scholars believe that she probably felt that she could ask this question because Jesus is now beginning to kind of go public with his messianess. He's actually got some followers who are going around with him and this is their first kind of public outing. And so she was probably thinking, okay, he's gathered some people and now he's going to begin to do these things because apart from the miraculous conception, like no big miracles have happened at all here yet. But she goes to Jesus and she asks him, why does she do that? I believe it's for two reasons. One, because she knew that he was God. And this was a problem that only God could fix. They weren't going to be able to come up with what they needed. They needed a miracle. And two, she knew that if she wanted something only God could give, she'd have to ask him for it. And that's true for us too. If there are things that we know only God can give, we need to ask him for it. We must turn to God's provision. If we're going to see the signs of his glory, we need to look in the right direction. We're not going to see the signs if we're not looking out the window. We need to look in his direction. Mary immediately looks in his direction for provision, looks to God. We so often don't do this because essentially we're thinking too highly of ourselves and too little of God. I'm going to fix my problem my way with my might and my wisdom, and we don't ever even try to let God help. We so often don't even turn to the one. Write this passage down, Hebrews 1.3. I love this, okay? This is who we're ignoring. This is who we're not turning to so often when we try and do it on our own. Hebrews 1.3 says about Jesus, he upholds the universe by the word of his power. Think about that for a second. He didn't even have to use his arm to spin the earth. Like by the word of his power, he speaks. He has that kind of authority. And all that is, is. Everything exists by the word of his power. 
makes me feel pretty silly about trying to do things on my own so often. Not trusting in Him, not going to Him, not depending on Him. If we want to see signs of the glory of God, then we need to turn to Him. He is the one with power and authority and might that can be turned to. I wrote down two categories, though, of which we need to turn to God in. Okay, here are the two categories. Here's the first one. We need to turn to Him with a matter of sin. The matter of sin. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sin, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sin and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Why? Because God so loved the world that He gave His only Son that whoever believes in Him should not perish but have eternal life. The biggest problem you and I could ever have is the problem of sin. And we all have it, and the only solution to it is Jesus Christ. Maybe you're hearing that this morning for your first time. You need to know you can come to him and have that problem solved right now. You can go before God right where you're sitting. You don't even have to close your eyes. You don't have to do anything special. You, in your heart, you talk to God, and you confess your sin to him and ask him to forgive you of that sin. And the Bible says he is faithful and just to forgive you of that sin. We all need that, first and foremost, because that's the biggest thing we need provision for. We need provision, two, two categories. The matter of sin, here's the second category. Every other matter of life. I know that's really vague. Listen, the wisdom of man is foolishness to God. The power, the might, the possessions, the authority, the wisdom that any of us think that we have, we only possess it by the grace of God that he has given it. He gives all of these things. We need to turn to him for provision. So how do we do this? Practically, how do we do this? One word, four letters. You've heard this before. We got to pray. Simply, we have to pray. We need to verbalize words and articulate thoughts of dependence and humility and thanksgiving and worship to God. Now, maybe you're thinking, well, listen, Carl, Mary could just go across the reception hall and find Jesus over there and tap him on the shoulder and say, they've run out of wine. That's a little easy. No, 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 no. It's easier for us. It's easier for us because Jesus said in John 14 that after ascending into heaven, he would send the helper, the Holy Spirit, who is with us all the time. You don't have to go looking around the room for God. If you believe in Jesus as your Lord and Savior, he is present with you 24-7, 365 for the rest of your life. That's awesome. And we need to pray. We need to talk to him. I heard a scholar recently, he said that prayer is the language of heaven that all God's children can speak. It's true. The problem is that we don't practice the language. I took French when I was in school from grades one through nine and then pretty much never practiced it or tried to use it again. If I go to Quebec, which usually happens once a year, maybe every few years kind of thing, I can kind of get by, but not very well. If I went to France, I'd probably starve to death, okay? That's, that's how good my French is. If I walk into a restaurant in Quebec and I say, uh, je mange les chaudes chiens, they're going to look at me. Now, what I'm thinking I'm saying is, I eat a hot dog? They're going to hear, you eat warm dog. <laughs> I'm not going to survive. They're looking at me because, why? Because I don't practice the language. Why do we struggle to pray and to call out to God and to petition before him? And to go? Because we don't practice the language. Yes, maybe you have a routine where you are coming before him before meals, when you wake up in the morning and when you go to bed in the evening, but why are the only other times that you're forced to practice or to go before God in prayer when disaster hits? Mary here, she knows she has a problem and her immediate instinct is to turn to God. Is your, is my 
increasingly in measure, immediate instinct to turn to God. She turned to Jesus for help because she knew only God could fix her problem. If I'm going to see how the glory of God in my life, I must turn to his provision. So in a time at this wedding when happiness and wine went together and wine is running out, happiness has got its coat and it's headed to the door and happiness is about to be gone. Now, uh, Kent Hughes, the theologian, writes this, like these newlyweds, the universal experience of humanity apart from Christ is that there comes a time when the wine runs out and when the joys and exhilarations of life are gone. Where it just all falls apart, apart from Christ. But listen, with Christ, with God, in the presence of God. Psalm 1611 says, You make known to me the paths of life, and in your presence there is fullness of joy, and at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. But really, Carl, can God completely take care of all of us forever? Yes, he can. I got a verse for you, Romans 11, 33 through 36. Oh, the depths of the riches and the wisdom of the knowledge of God. And then it ends with, for from him and through him and to him are all things. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Listen, his resources, God's resources are inexhaustible. You ever been exhausted before? God's not ever getting exhausted never getting tired and all the provision that he has in need because he can speak and create the universe because he can uphold the universe by the word of his power. That's the authority and the might and the power that he has. We need to turn to God for his provision. Back to our text here, verse three. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, they have no wine. And Jesus said to her, woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. And his mother said to the servant, do whatever he tells you. Now, Let's just pause there on that word woman. The English does not convey the tone of this title very well. We'll just, be, we'll just be all clear and honest about that. If I called my mom woman, or my wife, or my mother-in-law, or any lady in this room, in our culture, that would be fairly disrespectful. That would be fairly disrespectful, but you need to know that that is not the case here. In fact, in John 19, when Jesus is on the cross, he uses the same word as he's entrusting the care of this woman, his mother, Jesus, to the care of, of John. It's the same term that he uses. And so there is no biblical reason for us to think that this term used by Jesus is disrespectful at all. Now, he responds with a question back to her. See it there? He says, what does this have to do with me? It's almost like he's saying, okay, why are you telling me this? Like, what is the deal here? And then he goes on and says, my hour has not yet come. The hour that is referring to here is the time when his uh, messiahship would be fully proclaimed and he would be crucified for such a claim. Even though he was and is the Messiah and had fulfilled the prophecy of the blind seeing, the lame walking, the dead being raised, as well as many other miracles like walking on water, calming a storm, feeding thousands of people. Here he's breaking the ice with his miracles with turning water into wine. That time had not yet come for his full Messiah glory to be revealed. But look at what Mary does here. It says, His mother said to, to the servant, Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. Here's point uh, number two this morning on the path to the glory of God, to seeing the glory. I must surrender to his will. I must surrender to his will. 
Here we see Mary self aside, giving up the wisdom, the might, the ability of, of her to fix the situation. She's completely now just surrendering to God's plan. And if you look at the verse, it's not, a, we know the rest of the story, how it ends, but it hasn't, Jesus hasn't exactly hinted at, like, I got this, mom. Not at all. We don't really see that. When I read it, it sounds, if you just stop there, you think that everyone just went home thirsty. But, but that's not the case, and, and we know that. Now, she, though, in her, in her exclamation, which I would encourage you to underline this in verse 5, do whatever he tells you, she completely, she more than submits to his, his will, she surrenders to it. She surrenders. Surrendering to God's will for Mary and for us means being content with God's plan, even if it isn't our plan, because we know it's God's plan. Let me say that again. Surrendering to God's will means being content with God's plan, even if it isn't our plan, because we know it's God's plan. Mary knows that Jesus is God and that he will do whatever is best here. Even if it isn't what she wants, she knows, so she wholeheartedly, do whatever he says. This is in his hands now. She just gives it over to him. Do whatever he tells you. There's a word here for us 2,000 years later. Do whatever he tells you. We want to see the glory of God. We want to see him work in our lives. We want him to answer our prayers when we call to him, to provide for us when we turn to him. We need to surrender to his will and do whatever he tells you to do. I struggle with this, I'll be honest. I'm sure you do too. To put self aside, give up on my kingdom and seek first his kingdom and his righteousness. Even though I know that verse goes on to say, and he will, he will take care of me, we still struggle with that. God's word is clear over and over again that we need to get with his plan. The greatest moment in life is when we give up on our plan and we surrender to his will and we do whatever he says. That's going to be the best moment all the time when God is in control. He won't let you down. It may not go how you think it should go or how you want it to go. I'm sure this is not how this young couple had drawn up their wonderful celebration of marriage. But God is still in control no matter what goes on. Listen, if your plan includes a big house, a nice car, beauty, money, and wisdom, uh, the house gets old, the car breaks down, the beauty fades, money runs out, and someone is still smarter than you. That's the reality. I got a, a quote here uh, from Ravi Zacharias. It says this, The loneliest moment in life is when you have just experienced what you thought would deliver the ultimate and it has let you down. This right here is why we see so many celebrities and people of status who appear to have made it and have it all do such ridiculous and extreme things because they thought they had what they needed and it has let them down. It has let them down. In uh, Matthew 16, 26, Jesus says, What does it profit a man if he gains the whole world and forfeits his soul? The true way to peace and joy and contentment is in the presence of God. And we need to surrender to his will and do whatever he says. When I was studying this week and thinking about it, it kept reminding me of this phrase that we say to our kids all the time in our house. Listen and obey right away. Even last night, I went home from preaching this and I had to say that a few times to my kids. Listen and obey right away, all right? Now, God has entrusted them to our care, 
as parents who are hopefully wiser, smarter, we are more experienced in life. He's entrusted these children to us that we would protect them, take care of them, and ultimately point them to Jesus. That's what God's doing for us too. He's caring for us. He's protecting us. He's providing for us, and he's pointing us to Jesus. We need to surrender to his will. We need to do whatever he says. Listen, I don't mean to say this to you like I say to my seven-year-old, but listen and obey right away. Let's all say that together just to remind ourselves, okay? On three. One, two, three. Listen and obey right away. That's what We need to do this. It's a principle for children and for us. God's word here is calling to us today. Do whatever he tells you. Do whatever he tells you. The way you live your life will display what you believe about God. You cannot claim to fear and love God if you refuse to do what he says. In John 14, uh, verse 15, Jesus says, If you love me, you'll keep my commandments. Just straight up. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you're a follower of Jesus, you'll be growing in your obedience to him. You will do whatever he says. Question, how have you not listened and obeyed God right away? Why is this so hard for us? I know in my life it's pride, it's selfishness, it's conceit. The simple answer, it's, it's sin. But I wonder this morning in this room, what is God asking of you? What is he telling you? What is he commanding of you and me that we are not willing to surrender to him, to do whatever he tells us? In just a second, we're going to put a list on the screen. It's not an exhaustive list, but it is a list of things that Jesus has commanded. And there's going to be scripture that come up beside it. So you can, you can go home and you can read these later. But right now, just before this comes up, I want you to just take a second and ask God, Lord, teach me what it is I need to do. I want to do whatever you tell me. I want to listen to you right away. What is it? What are the things you want me to do? Let's put this list up here. Do whatever he tells you. Repent. Follow me. Rejoice. Let your light shine. Be reconciled. Do not lust. Keep your word. Go the extra mile. Let your, uh, love your enemies. Do not be anxious. Seek first his kingdom. Judge not. Ask, seek not. Do unto others as you would have them do to you. Choose the narrow way. We're not done. I told you this wasn't an exhaustive list. Two pages. We could have gone like seven slides, all right? Be wise. Fear not. Honor your parents. Go to your offender and work it out. That's a word for someone here today. Forgive offenders. Honor marriage. Be a servant. Ask in faith. Love the Lord. Anticipate Christ's return. Care for the least. Make disciples and baptize. Be aware of covetousness. Deny self and live for him. And Jesus says in John 14, 15, keep his commandments. Now maybe you're thinking and you're looking at this list and, and the Lord has brought a few things to mind. Maybe just the magnitude of the list, which isn't a complete list, you're like, I don't know if I can do that. That's why point one is so important. Because we got to turn to him and surrender to him and ask for him to help us because we can't do it on our own. We need his provision. We need his provision, and so we need to go to him and we need to ask. When this happens, when we surrender to his will, though, God gets glory. 
And as he gets glory, our, our faith stirs, our love and our passion for him begins to increase. Let me read the verse again. Do whatever he tells you. And I would say surrender to his will. Let's go back to our text now. Let me read a few verses. Verse 6. Now there were six stone jars uh, there for the Jewish rite of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them uh, to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. So the servants, uh, they listened to Jesus. They fill up these jars, which were essentially these massive stone sinks used for washing hands or for dishes. And they put, um, each one of them hold 20 to 30 gallons times six of them. That's about 180 gallons. That doesn't make any sense to me. I converted it to liters, which makes more sense to me. That's 680 liters of water that Jesus is about to turn into wine. Average 750 milliliter bottle of wine today. Jesus is about to give them 908 bottles of wine. Yeah, wow. That's amazing. That's a lot of wine. And as we're going to read here now, look in verse 9. When the master of the feast tasted, the water now became wine and did not know where it had come from, though the servant who had drawn the water knew. What was that servant thinking, right? I thought this was water. Okay. The master of the feast called the bridegroom, and he said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, and when the people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. So not only does Jesus make an abundant amount, abundant provision, but it's good. It's good. Here's point number three. I must anticipate his best. I must anticipate his best. Jesus not only turns 180 gallons, 681 liters into, of water into wine, but it's good wine. The master of the feast even makes a joke, likely from his own experience in hosting parties, giving people uh, the good wine that would get them a little bit intoxicated, uh, dull their senses a little bit, and then give them the not-so-good stuff that they wouldn't notice because things are getting a little foggy for them. We see no sign of substance abuse in this text at all, by the way. But he brings up this point to the groom, and he's like, it's the end of the party, and now you're bringing out the good stuff? Here's the thing. When Jesus comes through, it's always going to be good. It's always going to be amazing. It's always going to be best. John wants us to know here that the water became wine. They had run out, and Jesus does this miracle where water becomes wine. There is no vine ripening, no fermentation, no 15 to 30 years in a barrel. Jesus just did it. Awesome. Now you're like, well, how can he do that? John 1, 3. It's like right across the page from where you are. All things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. So the same guy who can speak the universe into existence from nothing can surely take water and turn it into wine. Now, people ask this question about a should or can Christians drink based on this passage often. The Bible doesn't say thou shalt not ever drink, but it does say in Ephesians 5, 15 through 18, I'll read it to you, look carefully then how you walk, not as unwise, but as wise, making the best use of the time because the days are evil. Therefore, do not be foolish, but understand what the will of the Lord is and do not get drunk with wine for that is debauchery, but be filled with the Spirit. So abstaining from drunkenness, we see in Scripture clearly is a command. 
The Bible has a lot of warnings in the Old and New Testament about consuming alcohol, and a quick survey of the use of alcohol by people who have abused it but never intended to will hopefully lead to wisdom that causes you to abstain from or use massively great discernment. Especially in a time where we live where there are so many things that are safe to drink. For them, drinking water could be a dangerous thing because they didn't always know where the water came from. There could be parasites. They didn't have a lot of options for beverages. Listen, there are thousands of safe things for us to drink that don't have alcohol in them. For us in our culture, with our highly addictive personalities, with pressure from all around, and our kids and others looking to us to learn from us, do we really want our senses dulled? a lack of self-control and increased vulnerability, we must walk in wisdom. And I would say have cautious conviction of what our stance is. Back to our text, though. We needed to address that, but back to our text. Jesus right here has provided. This party was over. Everyone was going home. There was no more wine. Jesus has provided in abundance for them. I like to, I, I love preaching on these narrative stories because I really try and imagine what's going on. And in my imagination, as this is happening, some of the groomsmen are like leaning over to the groom and they're like, if you don't have a wine cellar, you're going to need to build one. There's, there's this sense of like, there was nothing and now there's a lot. Like, that's pretty amazing. That's pretty awesome that Jesus has just done this amazing thing. Now, his disciples are there. They're watching this, and we know from verse 11, they're seeing his manifest glory, and their faith is stirring. They're believing in him. And hopefully, that's what God is causing in your heart right now, too. As you're hearing about this miracle where Jesus takes water and he turns it into wine, you're like, that's awesome, that's amazing, and hopefully he's showing you signs of his glory, of his greatness, of his power, and of his might, because he wants you to know who he truly is and believe in him and have a high view of God, which in turn makes problems of this world seem strangely dim. Anticipate his best. Now, this is not always easy because so often God reveals his best through our trials. And that's the difficult part, walking through that valley before the provision and the rescue comes. But listen, when it comes, it's going to be amazing. In Mark chapter 7, verse 37, after healing a deaf man who also had a speech impediment, it says that the crowd were astonished beyond measure, saying, he has done all things well. Like, it would have been an amazing miracle if Jesus took this hearing-impaired man and gave him hearing just in one ear. That would have been a big deal. That would have been awesome. But he not only does that, he gives hearing in both ears, and he clears up his speech impediment. That's amazing. Abundantly amazing. Okay, uh, Matthew 14. I want to give you a few of these. Matthew 14. Jesus feeds 5,000 women and children with five loaves of bread and two fish. They're all hungry. They all think, you know, we're going to have to leave. He's like, no, I got this. He fills them all, and they all, it says they had their fill. So everyone's had enough to eat. Amazing. Okay, no, no, no. But he does it abundantly, awesomely, because they're full, and there's leftovers. The Bible says there's 12 baskets 
of leftovers afterwards. In Hebrews 10, 12, it tells us again, Jesus does his best, most amazing, exceedingly awesome, preeminent, supreme. I literally tried to write down all of the big words that I could think of there because listen to this one. He offered for all time a single sacrifice for sins. Amazing, abundant, best. This is Jesus. He does all things well. Is this what you're expecting or believing of Jesus? So often, we're afraid to turn to God for provision and to ask him because we aren't willing to surrender to his will. We want our will to be done. Here we need to do whatever he tells us and believe that what he does will be best. What he does will be best. How do we anticipate his best? i got two things. They're going to come up on the screen here. These are things that we can remind ourselves of. The first one is uh, I know his track record. Know his track record. This, is, this means you got to be in the word of God, learning about him from his word. God's word isn't changing. God isn't changing. Our expectations and hopes and goals for God might be changing, but his word isn't. And he's been clear about who he is and what he can do and does. So is what you're asking and requesting of God, it, does it flow with his track record? Here's the second thing. Know his love. Know his love. So know his word and then know his son. God's love, that he sent his son to die on a cross, willingly took the punishment for sin that you and I justly deserve, that we can put our trust and faith and hope in him and be forgiven. Know his love and just be expecting more amazing, abundant, awesome, sufficient provision from him. But this doesn't happen when we aren't willing to humbly admit our need, our sinfulness, and put ourselves aside. God can take care of your massive problem, the massive problem of sin, and then every other problem that may seem big on life's, earth's problem scale. Anticipate his best. We got one more verse here in our text as we close. Verse 11. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifest his glory, and his disciples believed in him. Here's what we learn from this point. When we begin to see God's glory, when we travel the path, when we trust, when we put our faith in him, um, we get strengthened. Their belief, their tr- they, they're already following him, they're, already, they're, they're, they're with him, but it just gets more now. And so here's point number four. I must re- get ready to be strengthened. I love how straightforward this is at the beginning of Jesus' ministry. You see the glory of God and you respond with belief. Later in Jesus' ministry, people were coming to him and they wanted him to just do miracles just because they wanted to see Jesus do a miracle. That's not why he's doing it here. He's doing it here, verse 11 says, to manifest his glory, to reveal his greatness, that they would believe in him. 2 Corinthians 3.18 says that we all with unveiled face behold the glory of God and are transformed. It changes us as we behold the glory of God. So as you get in God's word and you read about him walking on water, breaking bread for thousands of people, spitting in mud and healing a blind person's eye, commanding a crippled man to get up and walk, going to Lazarus' tomb and calling to him, Lazarus, get up, and Lazarus coming out of the tomb. As you see these things, see the glory of God in them. Behold the glory of God and have your life transformed. Have your life changed. Have your heart stirred. God wants to give you signs. His book is full of signs. Don't neglect it. Don't miss it, please. 
This is for me too. We need to be gazing at the signs of God more and more, especially as he displays his glory. He displays his glory, and then we can get ready to be strengthened. Get ready to be strengthened. Okay, Carl, well, how do I practically get strengthened? I got three things for you, okay? They're going to come up here on the screen. Here's the first one. Um, Turn to his provision. It's not going to come up on the screen? Yep, there we go. Turn to his provision. Eyes off of self, onto God, in awe of him, calling out to him, dependent on him. That's your instinct. Go to him. That's number one. Number two, surrender to his will. Doing whatever he tells you. Listening and obey right away. Okay, here's the third one. Anticipate his best. These were the first three points of the message. I just wanted you to write them down again because they're really important, okay? We need to be doing this, turning to his provision, surrendering to his will, anticipating his best. Because listen, perfect, sovereign, almighty, omnipotent, omniscient, loving, just, compassionate, patient God is there, loves you, and wants to take care of you. And time and time again throughout this life and through his word, he is revealing himself to us that our faith in him would grow, that our understanding of his glory would increase, and that we, like the disciples here, would believe in him more. May you see signs of the glory of God more and more.